premeditation is a, a word commonly associated with murder. Uh, so that's <laughs> not a good idea with murder or with jazz, that's actually. Right. There you go. <laughs> that's right. I'm Russell Schmidt of the Valley Jazz Cooperative, and this is the Q&T Podcast. Today, in a special jazz education panel discussion, I'm sharing questions and tangents with a pair of nationally recognized artist teachers, Tito Carrillo and Paul Ferguson. Join us as we discuss the differences between a practice mindset and a performance mindset, the educational benefits of free improvisation, and even the value of a more tactile learning experience. And off we go. I'm joined now by Tito Carrillo, Associate Professor of Jazz Trumpet at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Paul Ferguson, Director of Jazz Studies at Case Western Reserve University. Our discussions for today's episode are a little more focused than usual on topics of specific interest to jazz educators and students. So let me start by welcoming you both to the podcast. Thanks, Russ. Thank you, Russ. Thanks for having us. You bet. It's my privilege. I'm going to dive right in with my first question. Paul, you've been at Case Western for over three decades, and Tito, you've been at Illinois for 13 years. So I'm wondering what sorts of changes you've seen over that time and how students learn or how they receive information from you. And also, I wonder about specific things you emphasize now that you didn't used to have to or ways you've adapted your teaching approach to meet your current students where they are. Paul? I guess the the one thing that uh, I encourage my students to uh, replicate about the old days is to remember the, the tactile sensation of writing out music and writing out chords and things like that. That's that's something that seems to be missing. And so some of the information they have doesn't always get in quite as deep as, uh, I, I often tell them how my high school band director gave me a, a set of parts and told me to create a score. This is when I was 16 years old. And boy, that, what a great project that was. It took me forever. And it was kind of a, a pain in the neck in some ways, but all of a sudden, I can I could transpose quickly, which is something students almost they, they only do with the help of a computer. Uh, some of them can do it a little bit, so so that would be one one change the uh, getting away from the tactile sensation. So s- some things are gained, but something is certainly lost. Yeah, I think uh, for me, the level of students' um, performing ability I feel is is. Uh, is raising, and in fact, what, what's happening is because of the the internet, because of the all of the materials that are out there, they're learning the rudimentary language of jazz a lot sooner, a lot quicker in some aspects. Um, I would agree with Paul, however, that there are certain things, especially when it comes to hearing uh, the language and, and being able to discern uh, from an oral perspective. Those are the things I feel that are that are lacking somewhat, uh, where where the the uh, information goes from the theoretical and it enter in it enters into the oral sphere or oral awareness. So that's that's uh, a lot of what I spend my time working on with students to develop to developing, making sure they're uh, not just relying on uh, these apps, for example, to to play tunes and actually not really dig inside and learn them or making them uh, uh, transcribe combo tunes to bring in. Uh, All of those are just excellent practices where you actually develop skills, develop the oral awareness um, 
even though it's tedious and painstaking at the beginning. Sure. Do you find, uh, Tito, that there are certain things that are available to students that make them interact with other musicians in a way that listens at the lower level of listening where there isn't communication, there's just playing in parallel. And I guess what I mean is I think about all the band in the box and Jamie Abersole type products out there that were fantastic when they hit the market. But I have concerns that now they teach a sort of passive listening because whatever Ron Carter recorded on volume 27 in 1998, (laughs) that's not going to interact with the player. Right. And so I know that communication is important to you. Um, Tell me how, you know, if you find that the communication is, is lost and people play in parallel where they're at the same tempo and hopefully in the right place in the tune together, but they aren't really interacting. And then if so, if you find that's true, how do you combat that when you work with jazz students? That's a great question. I um, address the communication aspect more than any other aspect within the combo setting. So uh, as far as my job description, I teach private lessons. I teach a large jazz ensemble, the University of Illinois Latin Jazz Ensemble. And then uh, I teach an improvisation sequence class improvisation, and then I have a jazz combo. And the combo is where I feel the student is going to get the most complete uh, individualized jazz instruction, but also learning how to play within a group, learning how to listen over. And um, so I address that more than anything. And I'll tell you the, the, the biggest way that I do address that is often I'll just turn off the lights and we'll play free. And uh, for some of them, they are, uh, um, I'd say a minority are pretty comfortable in that environment, have experience with that. And for the majority of them, that's a whole brand new experience. They're not used to it. There's usually a ton of trepidation at the beginning, but then I'll dedicate an entire 50 minute uh, class towards that. And sure enough, after about 15 or 20 minutes, they lose themselves in the process and just begin listening and doing it. And then immediately after that, we'll go and play one of our older tunes that we've been working on. And usually it's 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 uh, results in a lot of fresh uh, ideas and, and perspectives. But um, but yes, what you're saying, I mean, I hear it not just in jazz education, but I hear it in a, in a lot of the artists and music that's coming out where there seems to be more of an emphasis on the individual technical virtuosity and the, the, the development of new language, but not as much of this group uh, cohesiveness. And I think that's probably a result of just uh, bands aren't staying together as, as, as long anymore. Um, uh, which is where you really develop your group sound by by touring and, and staying together. Um, so I try to let my students know that you have a, we're here for an entire sem- uh, year, uh, academic year together. We don't audition and get them into new groups. We stay together for a year. So this is their opportunity to develop a group sound. That's beautiful. Paul, your thoughts there? As Tito was talking, I'm going to just take this a slightly different direction. Uh, regarding, this is a little bit related to the tactile sensation. 
uh, one thing that we I think we all have noticed is that since there's so much music available to students, that sometimes they don't get to know one piece extremely well. Like I, I grew up in a household that had three jazz records, Ellington at Newport and two records of Sammy Davis singing with Buddy Rich and Count Basie. <laughs> That's all we had. Now, I got to know those really well, which yes. was great because I got to know these Quincy Jones arrangements and Duke Ellington stuff. Now, now they have access to everything. However, there's a flip side to that. When I play with people of my generation, we tend to play the same real book tunes at weddings or whatever because that got deep into us. Now, when I, when I teach a jazz skills class, my students, in the same way that, that the real book is not deep into them, they're actually quite likely to write their own original compositions in certain ways. I'm, I'm finding that happening uh, more often. They're not really interested in doing a chart on Stella by Starlight. I might say, hey, just start off by doing an arrangement of Miles Davis's Four or you know, something like that. But they want to write something original right away. So there's, there's a flip side to not being too deep into an earlier tradition. <laughs> so there's, there's it just pros and cons all over the place. Sure. Paul, returning to your uh, comments on the sort of tactile nature of writing pencil to paper on music, I'm reminded of when I taught arranging in Bowling Green and at the University of Utah, I had students who, no matter how often I you know, implored them to do what you were saying. They were very comfortable writing their first or second big band chart ever on a computer screen on Finale or Sibelius where they were seeing perhaps one sixtieth or one ninetieth of their score right. at any time, <laughs> which would of course lead to the melody appears in the trumpet one part. Oh, and the trumpet one gets to solo, even though I've encouraged them to put a solo in trumpet two or four or something <laughs> else. And then, oh, trumpet one has to play the lead trumpet part on the top of the shout chorus. And <laughs> just kind of brutal writing unless you've got Wayne Bergeron in your section. <laughs> so so the tactile thing has advantages, not just in the in the creative process, but also just in the, in the in the process of practicality and how you write, how you envision the orchestrational architecture as right. a writer. So, what uh, what advantages have you seen for those students who've heeded your advice and actually do a more tactile experience in the in the process of making music on paper? Well, if if I can think of a student who heeded my advice, I'll uh, get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but actually, uh, instead of what what your question made me think was that uh, we talk about how computers and smartphones have affected people's attention spans. Well, in the same way, only seeing eight measures of your arrangement on a page is really going to affect your feelings about form. And form is one area that is most interesting to develop as you develop as a composer. Um, and there, there are pieces that I... Uh, wrote about 10 years ago that I, I look back at the original version. I'm like, oh, but then I revised it and I finally got the form right, or at least right for me. And uh, maybe the students will encounter that later on, you know, maybe they'll revise their piece or something. But uh, but that that's just another, another casualty, or at least uh, form will be developing in a different way due to only seeing a little bit at a time and attention span issues as well. So, but form matters whether you're writing a novel, whether you're building a one-minute improvisation solo, or writing a jazz chart. Um, uh, 
you and I, Russ, just a minute ago, we're talking about some older style charts, which uh, a lot of big band writing for many years was dominated by a kind of a Sammy Nestico, Thad Jones model where you have melody, improvisation, some light ensemble, and then maybe a big ensemble, then a return to the melody. Well, that was a decent form for that time. But now forms are changing. People like Maria Schneider, her forms are extremely complex. And it's, it's fun to watch that develop. But I think the people doing the most interesting things with form right now are probably the older musicians who, who realize, okay, this is, this is key to telling the story, just uh, what, how, how events unfold. How, how do you create a play? But Bob Brookmeyer often said, we're composing theater. And uh, mm-hmm. in a theater production, you know, when, when Willie Loman walks on stage, that's a big moment in Death of a Salesman or something like that. Awesome. So let me ask you this then. You're, you're, in some ways, you're talking a little bit about a, a myopic look at one's own craft, one's own art form. You, you talked about building things and you talked about constructing solos or writing a big band chart or whatever. But to me, that sounds similar to trying to build a house one two by four or two by six at a time without having any architect's plans and just like, oh, well, maybe a dining room could go here. And as you run out of wood, you're like, nope, this is the downstairs bathroom. That's that's not a great way to build a house. No. So how do you think we can encourage uh, young people to take a less myopic view? Are you uh, speaking uh, about... Uh, writing in particular or playing or both? I think both is a legitimate uh, option. If you want to take it down the playing thing, I can certainly cite a similar thing for performers where they might transcribe a lick they dig and think they've covered, oh, that, that, that helps me understand Joe Lovano. I got this Lovano lick I really like. And, right. But that's, that's not getting Lovano. That's getting a, a, a just a miniature moment right. of Lovano. Right. I, this kind of gets into my fo- just general philosophy of teaching jazz and, and jazz improvisation. And the, on the very first day of my uh, improvisation class, I speak about the two mindsets generally that are necessary for an artist. And they are the practice mindset and the performance mindset. And the practice mindset occurs largely in the practice room. It's where you are. Uh, it's, it's the language acquisition uh, portion of this thing. It's about uh, tedious repetition of vocabulary, ideas. It's where the transcribing happens. It's really kind of the nuts and bolts uh, laboratory, you could say, portion of, of uh, getting uh, one's uh, craft together. And, and part of that, too, a really important part is getting your uh, instrumental skills together, whatever instrument you're playing, your technical skills and that type of thing. But then the performance mindset is the, uh, that organic process that occurs where you leave that information in the practice room and you have a blank canvas and you're playing with other human beings and you really let go and play what you hear. And... Uh, I would say the majority of students that come as, as young freshmen, you could say, um, uh, definitely are much more familiar with the practice mindset, not so much the performance angle. Um, and, and so I, I, m- I make sure that they know that in order to develop as original artists into their most authentic selves, they need to be practicing both of those mindsets 
concurrently. It's not, it's not one where you have to prepare for years and years so that you can't know. You have to actually be throwing yourself into the fire and, and letting go. I guess um, you could say the same thing in terms of composition and, and writing, right? I mean, there's not a, a magic point you arrive at where, okay, now it's time to start writing. No. Sometimes uh, it, it's, it's so fun in my class where we discover a new chord like the dominant seven sus flat nine, for example. And I encourage them right then, hey, go and write a modal tune utilizing this sound. If this is a new sound for you, one of the best ways I know how to explore this in a musical context is go and write a little tune. It doesn't have to be complex. Maybe it has two chords, what have you. Create a melody, create a bass line. And, and so immediately you're putting them into that creative mindset. What are you going to do with this sound? Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> Paul, any thoughts there? That's, well, that's a great thought. What are you going to do with this sound? You know, yes. <laughs> yes. That, that reminds me, it's a chart that you probably don't remember, but I, I wrote a chart called Not So Happy Talk. I remember it. Okay, yeah. So fall of 1984 at Eastman, we played it. And it's, it's simply because I liked suspension chords at that time. I was 23 years old and uh, Bob Brookmeyer used it on a song called Hum with Clark Terry in 1964. <laughs> so I, I just wrote a song that was nothing but suspension chords and just... That, that exact thing. Exactly. And I tended to do that with a lot of chords. A lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my compositions only had like one, one little idea. <laughs> right. But then the, the goal eventually is to integrate uh, ideas as, uh, as elegantly or as effectively, convincingly as possible. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And uh, try to create a, a reasonable, uh, tasteful salad of, uh, of ideas that uh, has some coherence. So... And is not so happy talk on your friends' recording? Oh, it is. That's right. Yes, yeah, that's is. right. You played it as recently as 1999. So. Yes. And it features Sean Jones, with whom uh, you just um, you were mm -hmm. in association with him a little while ago. So. Yeah, and uh, with whom Tito was uh, sharing the stage just last week. Oh, my so. goodness. That's, that's right. They that's had a, a trumpet summit. That's a lot of trumpet fantastic. on one stage there, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was. It was formidable and oh uh, a great musical experience. Uh -huh. That's yeah. awesome. That's fabulous. Well, can I ask, uh, I'm going to turn things to Tito for yes. a second. Um, we, I just mentioned the Highland Festival. That's the Highland ASU Jazz Festival. They just had their 10th, and Tito was an adjudicator clinician at it. And I wondered, were there any commonalities you saw? Let's turn things towards high school band directors. And were there any commonalities you saw with student groups in that three-day festival? And is there meaningful advice you could give to band directors when they're working with jazz ensembles. And let's, let's for now, even though you're both collegiate teachers, we'll focus on sure. for high school kids. Sure. Uh, this is actually something I've thought uh, a ton about, and it's a, it's, uh, it's a challenging issue because the reality is there are a, a, a ton of um, uh, students coming through the music ed program who just happen to play instruments that are not uh, common in a jazz ensemble. Or, or jazz environment, uh, it's cool for me to see on occasion you'll see a, a high school big band which will try to include very talented students who maybe only play clarinet, for example, but, but have some excellent skills or flute players or sometimes violinists, things like that. Um, but what, what do those uh, 
educators, those who are going to become music educators, and part of their job description is going to be to lead the jazz ensemble, uh, yet they did not come up with that same experience. It's such a a difficult thing. And my answer, they might not like it, but (laughs) they need to uh, start embracing their own uh, jazz improvisation side on on whatever uh, basic level. In fact, I'm in I'm in the works right now to actually lay out uh, a very basic um, approach, a, a simple and direct approach, you could say, to give them a, a, a strategy and a battle plan to start engaging with learning some of the standard tunes and learning the, the theory and that type of thing so that they can begin experiencing it that themselves. The commonality that I saw is it became very clear to me um, which band directors had a jazz background based on the style which which the, the group played, based on the repertoire and the material which would, they were drawing from. And and um, and those are kind of two of the main the main components. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of there's like a whole different world, you could say. We we can talk about the history of jazz, and then we can talk about the history of jazz big band arranging uh, because uh, there's a whole uh, seemingly other world of a, a ton of arrangers who are putting out material together. It's, uh, I mean, um, uh, just putting out material on a yearly basis. And so um, it, it impressed me, the groups that you could tell were, were drawing a little bit more from compositions that a jazz musician would normally draw from, from standard repertoire, from jazz classics, music of Horace Silver, music of, uh, you know, uh, Wayne Shorter and things like that. Um, um, it's, a, it's a big issue. I mean, uh, Paul, I'd be interested to hear what, what your thoughts about this. Well, um Probably uh, it's hard to find any musician who covered more ground in the United States in the 20th century than someone like Leonard Bernstein. Mm-hmm. But even Bernstein felt more at home in certain places than others. Some people would argue that he was best at conducting. Other people feel like his compositions are strong. Some people think he should have stayed as a Broadway composer. Uh, he actually did write a little bit of jazz from time mm-hmm. to time. Um, yeah, it might sound pessimistic, but sometimes we're asking high school band directors to be a lot like Leonard Bernstein. Uh, they're bound to feel more comfortable. So, some people come out and they're just really into marching band, and mm-hmm. concert band and jazz band will always be, you know, like not really part of their deep thing. And, and so it, it just depends. I mean, you'll have some people that graduate; they're really into jazz band, but you know, put them on a marching band field and. They're screaming for an assistant to take care of it for them. So it's uh, you know it's it's hard it's hard to be a high school band director under the best of circumstances and uh, you know, we, we we can just hope to nudge things and, and mm-hmm. hope for some incremental progress. At least there's so much good material available. I, I was actually at a benefit the other night that had a high school band. It was like a raising money for a high school, and I was there for one, one reason or another. And they were playing really fabulous repertoire. I was rather shocked. And you know, the band director was not a particularly jazzy person, but he just he stumbled onto stuff. He's some a little bit of jazz at Lincoln Center, a couple of things from Sierra Music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was very pleasantly surprised. So, but it it does take a certain. At least we can encourage some curiosity and yes. and, and uh, leave a few things out there. And when I meet high school band directors, I try to get their email addresses and send them a couple things and just right. 
we can just nudge things along. Absolutely. <laughs> you bring up a great point, too, is that the, uh, when you talk about a band director, that's a lot of roles within yeah, one position. It is. There's, there's, there's no question about that. Um, and you're right that there's uh, a lot of materials out there, but almost that, that's actually can be kind of a problem as well. There's too much material. Uh-huh, right. And oftentimes uh, those band directors with less experience in the, on the jazz side of things will not know where to begin. I mean, if you're going to start with a, uh, a heavy jazz theory book you know, or something like that, that might be a little bit too much of a... Uh, of a leap for them, for example. So, Can we return to the communication question? Um, sometimes I'll hear bands where the soloists are clearly playing uh, a pre-composed F-A-U-X faux improvised solo, <laughs> and uh, sometimes they're trying to improvise, but it's fairly uncommon for a comping instrument or by comping in this context, let me be specific, guitar or piano um, or vibes, if we've got a four mallet vibes player there, or even the drummer to interact with a horn soloist. It, it just doesn't happen. And I mentioned earlier my discomfort with people playing in parallel, but not really playing together. Um, through the Valley Jazz Cooperative, I do work on this, work on spontaneous communication in the moment between the rhythm section and horn soloists. Um, what Have you found any strategies that would allow younger players to actually interact in the moment and maybe get out of their own heads a little bit, worried so much about the chord progression and the form of the piece and actually just communicating? Tito, I know you mentioned for collegiate level young people, you turn out the lights and do some free improv, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they're reminded that, oh, I could listen deeper to the music when I'm playing off of sheet music as opposed to a free improvisation. I think that probably compels them to listen a little deeper, and hopefully they bring that to the combo experience. Is there anything else along those lines that can help communication within, uh, uh, well, between rhythm section and horn soloists? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I were leading a high school group, I would actually take the same strategy um, and and just Oftentimes what I have to do when we enter into this free improvisation realm is is have to preface their uh, uh, preface it with a mindset shift. And that is that so often in jazz when we're learning uh, language vocabulary, we're so uh, it's like putting a straitjacket on and we're, we're, we, we're trying to be right. We're, we're afraid of making mistakes. And what I what I try to compel the students to do is, you got to understand that when we're in when we're playing free, there is no wrong note, there is no wrong idea. Uh, if you if you happen to uh, stumble over and your instrument falls over, like that's part of the music. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but that's part of that's an event that happened, and you accept it. Um, if, uh, if you hear a bird call outside or an ambulance going by, that's part of the experience. And so it's all about sound as communication between uh, musicians without, without premeditation. And so as I explain that to them, oftentimes then they'll be able to buy in a little bit. But um, if, if we could focus on the high school's I would say what what we're talking about, what we're discussing here is really this shift from the performance mindset 
I'm sorry, the practice mindset into that performance mentality. And the only way you can enter into performance mentality with anything is is you have to know the material well enough to let go of reading from the sheet. And so with younger students, I would just make sure that the material would be easy enough to facilitate doing that, even even if it's uh, uh, something like so what or, or something with uh, one or two chords uh, to do that. Um, that's where that's where they're going to be able to uh, understand that the music is not on the page. The music is happening right here as communication between these human beings. And every experience should be a unique one and should be should be a different one. You know, we have to kind of get rid of those premeditations. It's like every day, even if you're playing the same tune over and over again, each time should be a blank canvas. Let's see where this is going to go. Uh, but that mindset really has to be practiced, just like just like language acquisition uh, has its own things. The reason I constantly remind my students, the reason we practice something in every key or learn these tunes in every key and memorize them is f- to facilitate this letting go phase of music making, because that's where the magic happens. <laughs> Beautiful. Paul, any yeah, thoughts there? Yeah, premeditation is a, a word commonly associated with murder. Uh, <laughs> so that's, a, that's not a good idea with murder or with jazz, that's actually. Right. There you go. That's right. Okay, and, but what and, if it's anatomy of murder and what? Ellington's involved? Is that okay? Oh, I love the song Flirty Bird, especially. It's there you go. Eight Bar Melly, but anyway. Uh, I was going to say, um, one, one reason you don't have a whole lot of communication maybe in high school uh, groups is because playing jazz is hard, and it's a little bit like driving a car. Uh, you have to have uh, some months or even years of experience before you can fluidly change lanes on the expressway. Now, if you go out and drive a car and you are premeditated to staying in the right lane no matter what, you're going to end up behind a truck. That's right. You're going to be breathing some bad fumes, and you're going to just not feel very good about your situation. <laughs> and I, I can recall so many solos when I've just thought, oh, I, I'm going to play this really cool thing on my solo break. Bad idea. You're <laughs> almost always better off like taking something out of that somebody else played or, or something out of thin air or something like that. But that, that involves trust. And just like you need to trust yourself when you're driving a car, you need to trust yourself uh, performing as well. So, If I could add something... Um you know, it is important, and your your students are lucky to have you, Russ, because you are uh, such an excellent pianist. But you're a you're a member of the rhythm section. The rhythm section is very; they have very specific roles, right, within a within a jazz framework. And that's it's funny. That's something that I remember from last week too. You can tell the the directors that knew how to deal with the rhythm section and and understands the the, the fact that the bass is is really the heartbeat of the swing with those with that walking bass line and those quarter notes um, uh, and that the 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 actual conversationalists are both the piano 
and the drums as well. Drums is not just a timekeeper, but but drums has the dynamic contrast and power that needs to needs needs to be utilized towards matching the energy of the soloist in the moment, for example. Um, and oftentimes, I find that young young musicians, especially young drummers, they they would actually be open to that, but they're not always always getting that kind of clear instruction and guidance in that area. Sure, they aren't coached to dare to try. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) sure. You mentioning rhythm section roles reminds me that a couple years ago, Dwight Killian, Rob Moore, and I offered a rhythm section clinic for band directors at the annual AMEA conference in Mesa. We worked with the educators on the specific duties and musical obligations within the rhythm section, And we provided them with a handout I'd created for that session to help directors define these roles for their students to help them better succeed as jazz rhythm section performers. And since then, we've put it up on our Valley Jazz Cooperative website as a free PDF download. Any interested band directors or students will find it under the resources tab at valleyjazz.org. Continuing on with the with the free improvisation thing, I want to get your opinion on this, Tito, and uh, also to think about if I can learn from you, if there are ways I can tweak what I do. But I do have my students do some free improvisation, and I need to be clear, I'm not talking free jazz like Ornette Coleman or Cecil Taylor or whatever. I mean truly free improvisation, and it usually doesn't swing. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, the minute it starts swinging, it becomes something different. So we sometimes make a command decision, let's not try and have this thing swing. Um, But I will give them a title and try and make a programmatic piece of music out of it. So let's play Glacier. Let's play Hummingbird. Absolutely. I remember we were at a uh, church gig. I took my combo into Spirit of Joy Lutheran Church here in, in Greater Metropolitan Phoenix, and I let the audience call out some nouns, and we had to play whatever the winning vote was, and I let the students decide what piece they wanted to play. But the thing that won was Oak leaves. A very interesting choice to come out of the audience. And we had to play Oak Leaves. Oak Leaves. And I'll tell you that the tenor sax player in that group started by, uh, I'm going to move away from the mic for a second. Mm -hmm. He started making these woody noises by doing a slap tongue effect on his reed. And that just started the piece in a crazy Mm -hmm. direction. And everyone played ball with that. And the thing I come away from those moments with is like, one, what amazing creativity. Mm Mm-hmm. But two, I wish they would listen to one another that hard on everything we play. Because holy cats, those young people were listening incredibly hard to one another because they're playing a piece that has not yet been created in front of an audience. Right. And these are like 10th and 11th graders. It was really fantastic. So um, I do the programmatic thing probably two-thirds of the time to at least give them something to latch onto. So that's where I help them gain entree. Um, you mentioned earlier on in, in this uh, interview, you mentioned turning out the lights and letting it be, uh, you're basically you're taking one of the senses away. Yes. Not just that they're not reading music, but they're also not even making eye contact with one another. Right. What other techniques uh, have you found success with in getting people to, to create spontaneous music where there is no form, there is no chord progression? Right. Um, I do a lot of the same things you were just mentioning where, where we'll just go around the room and somebody will will just say a word or a phrase, and we'll go off of that. Sometimes it's an adjective, 
Sometimes it, something like serene, sometimes be something like traffic. Uh, some anything it could literally be anything. One time it was really funny. It was beans and rice. We played beans and rice. Awesome. <laughs> um, but um, but it's interesting. You know, you talk about what we're talking about is trying to. Um, open up the structure enough, but there is a little parameter there. Uh, oftentimes it can be very uh, intimidating for uh, for students to enter into this, this free improv realm. Um, they're so used to structure. A lot of times uh, you can have really talented students who thrive in structure. They love the the voice leading and the counterpoint and the rules and the two five ones and the bebop, you know, but, but it's so uh, challenging for them to, to really let go and just react and respond and listen. Um, but I actually will use free improvisation and, and maybe I'll keep a little bit more structure. For example, if, if I feel our group is struggling with our swing feel, then we'll play a swing free improvisation where harmonically we're totally free to do whatever, but we just have to make sure that all of our rhythms are coming from that, from that, uh, from that groove. And so all of a sudden now the focus is on the rhythmic aspect, making sure there's rhythmic integrity. So it's not always like completely free. I, I kind of feel like that's something that you have to work, work up and you build trust with, and then uh, maybe at some per a certain point, we get to a point where someone just starts playing and they're just, everybody's into it where we just start following suit. But I feel like you got to work up to that point a little bit. Yeah. I love that approach. Bringing the swing feel component into the free improvisational setting. It reminds me a little bit of what Paul described in a different podcast as blues content in the music. You're bringing that back into the free improvisation experience just through the feel. So as we're getting to the end of our time together, I just want to ask maybe some final thoughts about things you're optimistic about with the young people you work with and things that make you excited for their futures in music. Well, um, a lot of my students at Case are actually going on to careers in engineering and medicine and physics, STEM, uh, STEM careers. But uh, one thing that gives me optimism is that I have, uh, at least at Case, I have more students involved in jazz than I did 30 years ago. Uh, so that is remaining a constant, even in the face of the fact that so many students today, they don't dislike jazz, but jazz is like one or two percent of what they like among all the other things they listen to. But at least uh, I, I still see a, a core of young people that are really interested in it and uh continuing as best they can so beautiful tito i think uh the interest uh in in jazz is as high as i've ever seen it to be honest with you uh now what that will translate uh into is uh is is up to the universe here but uh but um here's the thing that that i notice is that the the lines are becoming more and more blurred between this what is jazz you know it's funny 30 years ago i remember that question had a lot more uh, heated 
relevance, you could say, especially at the advent of Wynton Marsalis and this whole Young Lions uh, thing. Now we're not asking that question so much anymore. You have, uh, and I think the reason is because this music is so malleable and you, there's, there's truly a global uh, interest uh, in jazz right now. So you have musicians coming from Africa, you have musicians coming from South America, the Caribbean, Israel, for example, who are combining the roots and fundamentals of American jazz with their own folkloric uh, music and elements of their own cultures. And jazz is totally open to that and to that uh, fusion, for example. So what I see with a lot of students is that they're, they're able to combine their wide interest in hip hop in, in whatever kind of styles that they're uh, playing um, and, and combine the elements of jazz with it. And they look at that as, as, as exciting and fresh and, and new, you see. So uh, I feel like it's my role as a professor to share my love of the of the art form and also my knowledge of the history of the of the music, so that they are aware of all of the great uh, artists that came before them. And then, okay, like similar to what what we were talking about in terms of writing a, a, a tune, what are you going to do with this artist? Who do you, who really, who's your muse? You know, I, I encourage my students to actually seek after those artists that they themselves resonate with because that's where their own uh, taste and, and, and artistic vision is going to be uh, formulated and, and shaped from. So. Those are two wonderful, inspiring answers, and it makes me so grateful for the privilege of getting to speak with you both today. Thanks for joining me, friends. You've been listening to Tito Carrillo of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Paul Ferguson of Case Western Reserve University. If you want to hear the music made by these great artist teachers, you can find Tito's recordings at originarts.com and Paul's recordings at paulfergusonmusic.com. And to learn more about the Valley Jazz Cooperative, please visit valleyjazz.org. The VJC Q&T is neither premeditated nor premedicated but it is pre-recorded in Tempe, Arizona. <laughs>